Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 198, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Some schools are using their federal stimulus dollars to hand out one-time bonuses to teachers and staff, and Illinois has become the first state to require the teaching of Asian American history. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest gives us tips on how to have a meaningful social-emotional learning classroom. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host of this podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic, and I probably say that all the time, but let me tell you, I'm, I'm coming off a, a, a very short but enjoyable vacation when I was um, supposed to return back to work. Um, crazy thing, had emergency surgery, you know, too much information, but um, I am healing and I am better and I am back at work and I am so fired up about this new school year. There's just so much optimism and and collaboration and heart that has to go into this second year mm-hmm. of a pandemic because let's be clear, it's not over. And I'm just really excited and I don't have as much apprehension um, and concern as I did last August. Um, Having some experience now, we know what to do. We have a plan A, a plan B and a plan C. I imagine educators have a little bit more confidence, even though we're dealing with the Delta variant and things are still spiking. At least you kind of it's, it's not quite like you're walking in the dark here. No. And that's the that's the great thing about it. We had to monitor and adjust multiple times last year in every area, including teaching children. Um, But I'm just grateful that we made it. I I think we all learned a lot. I think we gained um, some respect, not just from our communities, but even more respect for one another because we went through through this together Mm -hmm. uh, as a nation of educators and even more so in your smaller communities. So just really looking forward to seeing our kids come back, but also, you know, thinking about changes. Now, I believe the last time that uh, we were together, we talked about um, back to school plans and we had uh, that we were encouraging masks. And over the last two weeks of information coming out from the CDC and reports in the news, many school districts are revising or editing their back to school um, plans just as we have. And we are now going to require masks for all students, all staff, and all visitors. And I think that that gave a sigh of relief to our school. Okay. So you're doing that in your school. Now our kids school, it's only, I guess, is it mask are not required if you're vaccinated, right? Correct. Not required if you're vaccinated. And I think the reason why we went ahead and required masks for everyone, because you get into privacy Mm -hmm. and you get into singling people out. So if I don't wear a mask, 
Should I assume, should people assume that I'm vaccinated? If I do wear a mask and say I am vaccinated, will I be really ridiculed? And people ask me, you know, why aren't you vaccinated? I think you you put your children in, in, in difficult situations with that decision. And that is how we came to ours saying, let's just everybody wear it and protect everyone, mm-hmm. you know, and we can make adjustments as, you know, the data is revealed and different information has come down from the, the departments of health and CDC. But uh, I just, you know, my child is vaccinated um, and I've asked him if he, you know, doesn't mind if, you know, he's in a pep rally or something to that effect, you know, consider wearing a mask. And, you know, if someone sees him with the mask on, they're going to think he's not vaccinated and he is. Yeah. And it kind of almost looks like a scarlet letter in a way. It's it's, it's tricky. Yeah. You're right. So uh, I can't argue with y'all's decision um, there. So let's kind of switch gears about another new thing going on at our children's school. And is that that is we have started uh, year round school. And I got yeah. curious and I was like, how common is this? You want to take a guess of the at the percentage of K through 12 students in the US that go to year round school? Well, let me just first start by saying um, I'm originally from Southern California, uh, born and raised and many school districts. And think back to when I was in school and even in college, many school districts out west were already um, exercising the year round calendars. And so I was pretty, you know, aware of it, understood it, you know, thinking about my nieces and nephews who um, and they're all adults now who've gone through the year round school system. So for it to just now be a conversation, um, we can definitely say that COVID prompted it um, a percentage, probably at maybe 20, 30 percent um, pre COVID. But I suspect that number is going to rise greatly over the next two years. So, so your number, your percentage number that you're guessing, you said 20, maybe 30%. That's, mm-hmm. that's really higher than it is, much higher than it is based off of data from the National Association for Year Round Education. So here's what they say. They say um, that there are schools in 46 states in the District of Columbia that have adopted the year round format. Um, and it's nearly 3 million K through 12 students that are practicing it, but that only figures to about 4% of all K-12 students in the U.S. Um, Well, I I knew it would be a small number. I guess I stretched it it a little bit. Um, But I will be interested in knowing how many schools in the nation switched year-round this year and how many are planning because our district's plan uh, was to research it a little more, um, observe those school districts implementing currently and what changes they make, and we will be adopting our next calendar mid-year, and we are going to be moving towards that same model for the 2022-2023 school year. Yeah, now that data that I was citing is actually from 2020, so it's it's not super yeah, fresh, it's pretty- but it's fairly new. Um, yeah. and, but the other comparison that's worth pointing out is um, 30 years ago, the number of students was 400,000. So again, it's 3 yeah, million so now, it's so definitely- you've seen a huge jump, right? There are benefits, okay? I'm going to talk about the negatives first. Um, trying to align uh, all of the different school communities together mm-hmm. for the wet working parent is probably the number one concern that came up when we surveyed our teachers and we talked about it. Um, but there are so many other positives um, being able to give, you know, re- pretty much 
well, I guess you can't say eradicate, but shrinking the summer slide, mm-hmm. giving children instruction year round, um, the the uh, intervals where students are not in regular school, they're not at home, you know, just watching television. Schools are able to provide interventions, enrichment programs, and tutorial sessions for students, but also able to give teachers time to collaborate and provide professional development, which is much needed um, in order for us to continue to build our skills and to grow versus just cramming in at hour or two after the workday. And then um, even with that, you're still able to offer some summer um, support. It does shorten the summer, but at the end of the day, it, it is you know beneficial for students. And I guess the only thing that people have to consider, um, the number of days that teachers will work, um, teacher salaries, and a lot of people don't understand right now, they think teachers are paid Um, for 12 months and that they shouldn't whine or complain about their salaries, but they are not. Their salaries are based on 187 days Hmm. of a school calendar, and it is stretched over 12 months so that they are not put in, you know, difficult situations in the summer and needing unemployment or to, you know, look for other jobs. So a lot of times people don't understand that. So that's also something you have to consider on the fiscal side when making this decision. But I think it's going to be great if you plan it appropriately. Um, We have a local school district in our area who has already board approved it for the next school year. Um, We're we're looking. Yes, that's that's pedal. And we're looking at um, getting ours adopted mid year. And then you have other districts um, that are right here in our area who uh, moved to adopt it late spring and they are already in school as of yesterday. And you know what? I haven't heard a lot of complaints. I, 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 I just haven't. I, you know, have a kindergartner going on first grade. I also have a sophomore going on junior. I have to tease. I saw pictures. They looked so cute for their first day of school. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we were, we were excited. And I, I think that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, man, that summer was fast. It was kind of like, oh, it's about time to go back. I'm ready. You yeah, know, like we had a good yes. summer, you know, so well, they miss their friends, you know, and, and the routines. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't. And I remember other summers where I was kind of like, when's school going to start again? So. <laughs> Um, anyhow, it's, it, I, I'm going to be optimistic about it. I think it's going to work. There are other cons. There's sports aligning. I think you guys are probably going to be playing football during one of the extended fall breaks, Absolutely. you know, and, and yeah. that doesn't, but that hopefully would work itself out in time as maybe, like you said, regions I don't and states. Know if it's, I don't know if it's that difficult because remember during the intercession time, tutorial and enrichment supports are provided. So, you know, some students will still get up and go in school for a few hours and get some extra help that they might need. Mm-hmm. And then if they have athletics, I mean, they're on campus and then they just report to their fall sports. Um, right. If they are not participating in enrichment or whatnot during that time, then they're studying, but they're still showing up for athletics and it's just going to work out just fine. I love the positivity that, um, you know, I'm seeing online from those districts who adopted that. But I have to ask this question, you know, so a lot of school districts started back this week and we're watching the news and hearing so much about the Delta variant and how serious it is for unvaccinated people. And we have some friends and colleagues and neighbors who sent their children to school for day one mm-hmm. and they are already quarantined. Yeah. I ha- that I have is not a major concern. So, so you already yeah. know people that are having a yes. quarantine, huh? Yes. Wow. Um, and, and what does that mean? None of their children are vaccinated. Right. And this is specifically high school that I'm referring to. Um, none of their children are vaccinated. So if someone showed up to school today and tested positive, or if they had their, let's just say senior party last night and someone tested positive today, they're all quarantined already. Yeah. So mm-hmm. 
you know, it just caused me to pause a little bit like, wow, so we could still be dealing with children missing extended number of days. You're right. No, I mean, it's I am glad to say that my junior is vaccinated. Of course, he's of age to get the vaccine. And my senior is vaccinated. But so when apparently if he is near somebody who tests positive, uh, he he will not have to quarantine. Right. And that's kind of the policy that they're operating under, which as an athlete, that Mm -hmm. that was even more of a motivator, I think, for him to get. I'm trying to tell you. (laughs) <laughs> so so anyhow uh w- we will see how it plays out no doubt let's switch gears a little bit um away from the direct covid talk but we're still talking covid effects and that stimulus cash i saw an interesting yeah. story in the wall street journal that dozens of school districts and states are spending big chunks of their historic federal stimulus cash on one-time bonuses to teachers and staff and it's as a thank you districts in tennessee texas california colorado and Georgia have approved four-figure thank-you bonuses, um, and it looks like Georgia was the first state to act by signing off on a $1,000 statewide bonus to 230,000 school-level employees. I'm covering I must every- be in the wrong state. <laughs> yeah. And, and it says it covers nearly every teacher, staff member, including aides, custodians, bus drivers, and cafeteria workers. It says it's going to cost $230 million, or about 35% of the $660 million federal coronavirus stimulus dollars that they received um, in Georgia. Hey, so so what are your you thoughts know, on that? Is that? My thoughts are, guess what? If they can do it, more power to them and congratulations to their certified teachers. However, other school districts, including mine, you know, there are a lot of needs um, to try to close that gap on technology and access to internet and all of those different things. And so those seem to be priority. And that's where a lot of our focus was in was making sure that, um, we update our infrastructure and just all of those things so that we can do a better job of, of providing, um, online and, and, you know, at the moment in instruction. So I just think you have to prioritize. And there are a lot of districts who are much more progressive and much more advanced with their resources. And so that's a great way uh, to use that funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So if I hear you right, you're saying if they can accomplish what they need to accomplish, and it feels like they would just, they're like looking for places to spend the money, then great. Mm-hmm. Yes, do the bonuses. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Is that- but if they do that, and then they're still in a bind with all types of other um, shortfalls, then I don't know if it was a a good decision. Let me also make sure that I say every educator, every educator I wish could get some type of bonus or Mm -hmm. extra, you know, reward for what we endured last year and how they pushed through, especially those of us that taught all year long face to face. You know, there are many districts that never opened up last year. Some that didn't open up until after spring break. But many school districts that, you know, specifically here in the South, we were face to face in school every day of the school year. And those are some some some, you know, people that really need to be celebrated. I like the idea that it was extended to AIDS, custodians, bus drivers, cafeteria workers. Yes. Because every time last year. They play a critical role. Well, and when I pre-pandemic or pre-vaccine, when I would see a bus driver driving around with a mask on and a bus full of kids, yep. I thought that is the the scariest job maybe of yep. all. I mean, you were in an enclosed box. It's like a Petri dish. And, and you're not, you can't really, you know, it's hard to regulate. It's hard to say, put your mask mm-hmm. on when you're driving a bus and you're focused on other things. It just, and think about the sanitizing yeah. of it. It's so many different hands. Every time they right. stop at a stop, children are, you know, potentially touching every seat there. Like a Petri to get, dish. To get That's off right. the bus. You're absolutely right about that. Mm-hmm. It says schools have until 2024 to spend stimulus dollars. Um, so we will see if other states, you know, hop on this trend here and uh, start awarding more bonuses. Not to say Mississippi 
uh, wouldn't do the same thing. So we'll see how that one plays out. And uh, what, one other story I had pop up on my radar, uh, I saw it on NPR. It, it was um, involving um, Illinois, and this was actually about a week old, old but um, mm-hmm. Illinois has become the first state to require the teaching of Asian American history. Um, it says, the governor says, we are setting a new standard for what it means to truly reckon with our history. It's a new standard that helps us understand one another and ultimately to move ourselves closer to a nation of our ideals. And he signed it into law last Friday. Thoughts on that? Nick, I have questions. I probably don't have the answers, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah. But I guess there are a few things that came to my mind immediately. Um, the first time that I read that article and number one, um, kudos to them. You know what I mean? That's great. Uh, do they have something where they've passed legislation um, regarding black history, which is American history? I don't think so. And probably not. And so right. that just does something to me um, that we still continue to ignore truths about our history. And just with that huge discussion about critical race theory being taught in schools, right? Or not, should I say, being taught in schools right now, it's just so troublesome that we pick and choose um, what we will teach our children and, and not just giving them the full truth. And even if that truth is ugly, it's important to understand it because they can make connections with people that they teach and learn and serve alongside every single day. So I, I just I just wish we could push that even further. I think back to about six months ago when we were seeing a lot of um, hate crimes towards Asian Americans. And um, I believe Congress came together and pushed some you know things across the table. And that's great. But that's all that it took for them to get some recognition and some support. And I just think that the struggle of other minorities has gone on for so long and we're just not reacting in the way that I think that we need to. And so it's kind of disheartening. And and as I said, I do not have the answers. I think you raise a extremely valid point. I think um, Illinois is trying to be progressive and do the right thing, but I'm quickly Googling. And like I said, I, I, I have not looked at this closely, but I'm Googling whether or not states require black history and apparently it is vaguely defined, according to a CNN article that I, I just stumbled across. And, right. And just thinking about that and how recently Texas <laughs> changed their laws to, you know, removing the requirement of certain pieces of history that were required to being taught, including information about Susan B. Anthony and Martin Luther King. And so it's just it's so much to unpeel here. Yeah, it is a lot to unpeel. But interesting to know that one state is moving forward with the Asian American uh requirement. Yeah, and kudos will, to them. Yeah, we will see if uh, other states follow uh, suit there. Are you uh, ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us some real world tips on social emotional learning. Dr. Loria Martinez is the founder of Heart and Mind Consulting, a company which helps schools integrate SEL into their daily routine. She's also a faculty member at Columbia University Teacher College. She recently authored a book called Heart and Mind, which can be found where books are sold. Loria, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Uh, as you know, uh, social-emotional learning is very much a, a buzz topic uh, throughout the country and in the world of education right now. Why are we seeing this really bubbling to the surface? And have we not always cared about SEL and education? Yes, that's a great question to get us started. So SEL has been around for many years. I mean, the research, probably the last 15 years, 
has been looking at this set of essential social emotional skills and how they impact student achievement and also um, student well-being. And I think the last year and a half with COVID-19 and the pandemic and the fact that students had to stay at home and they couldn't go to school has really highlighted the need to support students' social emotional health. And that's one of the reasons why SCL has been brought up to the front and schools are thinking about reopening in the fall and really paying attention to those aspects that really influence how students show up in the classroom and also their ability to really be able to focus on learning. Help me hook anyone out there who feels like this is just the new buzzword and this is just something that I already do on my own. I mean, what would you say to the naysayers out there who feel like they already have these practices built into themselves? I would say, Chapo, if you are already integrating social emotional learning in your teaching and you are able to bring emotions into the classroom, if you are looking at what are some of the emotions that students experience when you are teaching and how you bring their full selves into your teaching, and you are really paying attention to their engagement and their internal motivation, I would say, amazing, like continue to do that because that's that's work that is needed and also that is going to support your students in the long term. But I feel there's a misconception when it comes to social-emotional learning that um, I think it's helpful to unpack for your audience and is the fact that social emotional learning many times is seen as teaching a set of, of skills. And there is an important component of implementation that has to do with this explicit instruction. But SEL goes beyond that, really looking at what are the social and emotional conditions that you create in the classroom in order for students to be successful learners, not only with academic content, but to provide the tools that they need in order to navigate their context. So it's really looking at the level of engagement, the kind of supports you are providing, what are the kinds of expectations that you have uh, for students' work. So there are several aspects that you need to look at when you do implement social emotional learning. So even if you think that you are doing, I think it's worth uh, examining what are those practices and then seeing if there are any places where you could do a little bit more. Okay, so you're you're saying it's more than a skill. Yeah, so it's more about um, how you are engaging students in the classroom. So for example, um, probably many of your audience are is familiar with the zone of proximal development. So being able to ask students to do work um, that is a little bit more that they are able to do on their own with your support, but it's not too challenging or too easy, right? So what social-emotional learning does is being able to, uh, through those skills, be able to help students access that next level of development um, where they can really develop the the content, the knowledge, and the skills that they need in order to learn. Um, So going beyond those skills, but how you are putting those skills into practice, and as an educator, how you are seeing what's happening in the classroom as a way to enhance students' social-emotional skills. 
I know that you kind of start off by saying um, SEL is not necessarily about the kids. It's about the adults. What do you mean by that? Yes, that's a very important part of my perspective on social emotional learning. And what I mean by that is that if we want to teach and infuse SEL effectively in classrooms, uh, we need to start with ourselves, uh, with us educators, because we cannot teach what we don't practice. Right. That means that if you're asking students to identify their emotions, to name their feelings, to be able to take a break between a stimulus and a response so they are not reacting to different situations that happen in the classroom, they have that those self-regulation skills. As an adult, you need to be able to intentionally practice and model those skills for students. So students are watching us all the time. And if you are working with kids, you know this. And they know when you are not being authentic, when you are asking them to do something that you are not willing to do yourself. So a lot of the work um, that I do with schools on SEL is not as much focused on the students, but really making sure that the adults have that clarity around practicing those skills. And the thing is that many of us, we were not taught about emotions when growing up um, in our families or in our schools. And we learned these skills by a lot of trial and error. And in many cases, there was a lot of error. So what we are doing with SEL is helping educators to um, unlearn some of the lessons uh, that they learned growing up in their schooling when it comes to emotions and and what's the relationship that you have with emotions so they can then do that teaching effectively for students. You said something a a little earlier and you said, you know, it's important to kind of unlearn um, some of the things that maybe us who are now teachers learned as we were kind of going through school. Like what comes to mind when you say that? Yes, the particular one is what is our conception of what emotions are? And what we teach in, in the SEL field is that emotions are data. They are information. So emotions are a conversation from you to you. The question is, are we paying attention to that information? So when we develop our social emotional skills, what we are doing is trying to make friends with our emotions, try to bring them as allies and understanding and interpreting what is that data that they are trying to communicate. And when we have big feelings is because there are big things happening and what most of us were trained to do was to ignore our emotions or suppress them because we thought that they were interfering with our cognitive processing. And what we know today from research done in effective neuroscience is that those two systems, the cognitive and the emotional, work together in order to make decisions, to learn new information, to um, to retain information. So we want to make sure that we are paying attention to our emotions in order to be able to fully engage all the tools that we have as humans. And I feel like that unlearning of making friends with your emotions is a really big step for many people. You also say that social emotional learning needs to come with an equity lens. What do you mean by that? Yes, that's also an important part. So the work that has been done in SCL for many years had a really big focus on the individual social emotional skills. 
And what we saw is that it wasn't serving well students, our black, indigenous, and students of color in our schools, because it didn't take into account the sociopolitical context and the particular situations that they had to navigate on a regular basis because of their, their, their ethnicity, their race, and their experience. Um, so the need to really center SEL inequity comes from, from that place, from really trying to make sure that we are supporting all students with this work and that, that we are taking into account what are the values, what are the lived experiences of students, and that forms is an important part of the conversation when it comes to SEL. And we know that although emotions... Uh, most of our emotions are universal. The way the different cultures have to share their emotions or what's appropriate in different families is different. So as an educator, we cannot teach these concepts as if they were neutral, but we really have to look at, okay, what are the students that I have in front of me? And, and trying to bring those lived experiences, those values into the conversation so SCL can be really effective uh, not only as a, as a process of learning, but also that can really serve those students to be able to navigate those contexts. So you are really helping that student that you have in front of you instead of like this idea of what, um, you know, this average student that sometimes we imagine having. Is it fair to say that part of looking at things with an equity lens, I guess the, the first step is awareness. Do you find that some teachers almost are, unaware and and you first have to realize that oh I have to to open my mind a little bit here and understand where other people are coming from absolutely and with these equity lens the process is similar to what we were discussing earlier about starting with the educator and the skills of the educator so as a as a teacher you come into the classroom with a specific lens and that lens is being formed by your values your teaching philosophy um, your upbringing, your schooling, your ideals, what are the things that you want to bring into the classroom? And you need to take some time to, to reflect on what that lens is, right? So it starts with the educator. Because we, our brains, just because we have brains, we have bias. So you might come into the classroom and if you are serving students of color or students that come from immigrant families and parents, for example, are not showing up to meetings, you might think, oh, these parents don't care about the, their children's education. Well, maybe if you dig a little deeper, you figure out that parents maybe have two to three jobs in order to, um, to, to pay their bills and the schedule that the school puts out really doesn't work for the parents, right? So it's doing all those things around questioning and, and examining that lens that you bring in so you can really fully see the students that you have in front of you. And, and again, that process, as you were saying, starts with that personal awareness and then extending that to your students and getting to know your students uh, for who they are. I think that's such an important part of this equity lens of really building relationships with your students and learning more about uh, who they are and what they want to do in the world. How are we doing as a, a country, as a society, in implementing 
these SEL practices at a school? Can you score us on like a scale of one to 10? And what score would you give us? So I think that implementation varies very much by, by region, by school. I can tell you, for example, here in California, where I am, uh, this last year, there was a big initiative and our county offices of education got some funding to do SEL work. And the 58 county offices of education have been coming together uh, in a community of practice to really look at those essential concepts and essential practices to bring SEL effectively. So although implementation may be spot in different places, um, the effort as a state is really pushing. There's a lot of momentum to make this work. But I know in other areas, uh, it's not as organized, I would say. So you are going to find maybe schools that have been doing this for some time and others where they are just getting started because a lot of this work is working with educator mindset. Uh, and in some of those places, they maybe that's the place where they, they are starting. So I would say it really depends uh, on, on the area and the school. You work with other students, I guess, who want to be teachers. Do I have that correct? Uh, yes. Okay, so what's the takeaway or what would you like them to to leave one of your classes with at the end of the year in terms of SEL? Like if you say, if I, there's one thing I want you guys to, to hear me on, it's this, what would that be? I would say that SEL is a, a tangible goal. This is something that any teacher can do. It just takes some intentional practice. It takes some commitment on the educator's part to be able to integrate social emotional skills in their teaching. Uh, but it is possible. And I have not found one teacher, you know, in the 10 years almost that I've been supporting SEL implementation in schools and doing teacher development that has said, oh, I've tried this and it doesn't work. Now, uh, your book is titled Heart and Mind. And heart is actually an acronym, correct? That's correct. Let's, let's break that down a little bit uh, if we can. So let's start with H. Yeah, so H stands for honor your emotions, and that means naming, interpreting, and being able to identify your emotions. So really seeing your emotions as uh, part of who you are as, as human and using that information that I was sharing earlier in order to make positive decisions. Okay, how about E? E stands for elect your responses, and that means creating the space between stimulus and response. So all the tools that you can develop in order to manage your behavior effectively. All right. How about A? A is, stands for apply empathy. And in my model, empathy includes not only being able to connect with the emotions of others, but also apply empathy to yourself. And I found after you know many years working with educators that this is an area that... Um, it's really hard for teachers to apply to themselves the same grace that they would apply to their students or to other adults. Okay, R? R stands for reignite your relationships. And this is an area to develop all your social skills, how you connect with others, how you communicate, and how to maintain positive relationships during your lifetime. When you say that, reignite your relationships, I mean... It, you're speaking to mostly educators, I guess. Um, are you saying reignite your relationships with your colleagues, with your students? Like, what comes to mind for you there? Both. I think it's both. I think that the relationships with students is a very important part, uh, but the relationships that you can establish at the school level are key in order to develop a positive working environment. I remember I started my career as a special education teacher. 
And I remember that at the beginning when inclusion was starting to happen and special ed teachers would come, instead of having their own room, they would do uh, pushing in the classroom. It was very hard for teachers to let me go in their spaces because there was this idea that, okay, you have your space, you are here, I'm there, and let's not, you know, mingle with each other. Hmm. Um, and there's an important component of creating a positive learning environment for students that has to do with how the adults are with each other. Good point. And lastly, T. So the T stands for Transform with Purpose. And this is something that we don't see a lot in SCL models or something that it's underdeveloped, I would say. Um, And it means to really look at what are the gifts, what are the strengths that you bring into this world and looking at what is the purpose, what is the contribution that you want to bring into your community. And this is an important one to work with students because through the development of this skill, students can see themselves as contributors, as change makers in their communities. So they see that they have a voice in not only identifying challenges and things that don't work well in their environment, but also being able to act on them and do something to improve it. Uh, again, the book is called Heart and Mind. It's full of activities to help implement SEL in your classroom. Why was this important for you to write? Of, of any topic you could have picked, wh- why is this personal to you? Yeah, so I, I, the field of SEL, I discovered it when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. I really fell in love with it uh, because it really brings a lot of the key findings and key insights that I had been uh, seeing in special education, but also a very much a data-driven aspect and is such an important component of supporting students' health and development in the long term. Um, and the book, the idea of the book came up because I was seeing so many misconceptions in how SCL was being implemented that I wanted to provide educators with a tool that they could ha- that they could get and they could do something with it. So it combines uh, research with practical application, and it has a full section on the adult SCL skills um, because I thought I, I saw that that was needed. So I wanted to provide something that educators could read and immediately do something with it. Well, what's a misconception that comes to mind? Uh, so one of the things we have talked about a couple of them, um, one being the um, student, the SCL is for students and not adults. But another one is that when you teach a curriculum, you are uh, teaching SCL. And as we have discussed, SCL is also looking at what are those conditions that you are creating in the classroom. Um, and also the fact that SCL can be integrated throughout your teaching, right? That that explicit instruction is one part, but that you can do many things to help students develop these skills successfully. Uh, again, you're listening to Dr. Loria Martinez. Uh, the book is Heart and Mind. It can be found uh, wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or, or maybe even your local bookshop. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Wow, that's a, that's a tricky one. I would say history. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? The arts. What does every child deserve? To be loved and to be cared for. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? To do the thing that they love in the long term. What do you mean by that? Uh, To just 
develop their resilience in order to stay in the profession. I think that being a teacher is becoming harder over time. And um, I really hope we change the system so educators feel supported and uh, feel that they can go into the classroom to do their best work. What's the best gift to give an educator? I think the gift of time. Which teacher changed your life? Yeah, so particular one comes to mind was my eighth grade uh, social science teacher. He really believed in me and um, opened the door for all amazing learning that I could do and uh, really changed my life. That's fantastic. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Lori, if somebody wants to track you down uh, online, what's a good place to do that? Do you like to hang out on Twitter or website? Yeah, so I hang out on Twitter. My handle is uh, Lorea Mart, and I also have a website, loreamartinez.com, that is full of free resources and downloadable. So if you are into SEL or want to learn more, uh, you can go there. And the first chapter of the book is currently available for free on my website. Oh, that's great. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing uh, some of these SEL tips with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.